Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm your host, Anne Remy. I'm a counseling psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and trauma specialist living in Brighton, UK. On this show, we interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. But we're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level, from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Happy birthday month to me. Oh, happy birthday month. OMG. Yeah. All February is my birthday month. I do the same thing, so. Yeah, as you should. It's a good thing we don't have the same birthday month. Well, then, actually, I did have a friend who had a birthday the day after mine, and we had all the same friends. And so we had to coordinate for several years until he moved away so that we could have a birthday party at the same time. Mm. <laughs> it was kind of annoying. So, yeah, it would probably be really annoying because then we'd have, like, competing parties or something. Yeah, I have a friend whose day, who's, his day, his birthday is just a few days after mine. And we did the same thing because we're both very full of ourselves and <laughs> we're not trying to, we were like, we mm-hmm. can't have competing parties. Yeah. But I think secretly we were still like, I don't know how I feel about sharing my birthday party with you. <laughs> Actually, speaking of birthdays, this is totally random and has nothing to do with the podcast, but I released an album. I don't know if you even know this, Anne. Do you know this? I know. Yeah, I do know okay, this. Yeah. So I I released an album with my friend Ben Mueller, who, if you have heard the outro, if anybody has listened through to the outro, (laughs) you will hear that the theme music is the music that he wrote that is one of the songs that's on the album. And we're doing an album release party. The date is up in the air right now, but I think it's going to also be my birthday party on February 10th, even though that's nine days after my birthday. So if you're in Chicago hit me up because I'll give you all the information about what ends up happening. And the band's name, everybody will appreciate. The band's name is Access 2. <laughs> and for those of you who maybe went to grad school when the DSM-5 was released, Access 2 is relevant because, so it's like archaic, but also amazing because there were five different axes within which we diagnosed people. And Access 2 was reserved for personality disorders. And the thing about the reason that I picked that is not just like a funny joke, but I wrote a lot of the lyrics while I was in grad school or just becoming a therapist for the first time. And the first song on the album is my lyrical interpretation of borderline personality disorder. Ooh, love that. So little, little Easter egg for anybody who listens to the podcast that that is disaster. Yeah, is the name of that song. So yeah. Let me know what you think if you want to listen to Axis 2 wherever you find your albums. Wherever you find your albums. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about ways that you can support us. Our little indie podcast would love your support in any way you can. Yes, it would. And we deeply appreciate and we should shout out actually the people who do give us money on Patreon because we adore you very much. So if you want to be one of those folks and mm-hmm. you'll have access now to monthly videos that Ann and I are going to release because we just wanted to spend more time together and talk about mm-hmm. cool things. So mm-hmm. you can find us at patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer. And yeah, so check it out. You can give as little as a dollar a month. We will send you welcome gifts if you are in regions of either the US or the UK, if you join mm-hmm. and we love you. For merchandise, if you like t-shirts, if you like 
tote bags. Who doesn't like a good tote bag? I actually don't love a tote bag. I'm not going to lie. Well, and aside, <laughs> most of us love a good tote bag. <laughs> Who doesn't love a hoodie? Uh, okay. You got me okay, there. Right. I don't think anyone can argue with that. You can get merch on tinyurl.com slash CWH merch. Mm-hmm. You can find our stuff there. We've got some cute designs. And yeah, we appreciate you. We appreciate your appreciation. And you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Yes. So please. Please do that. And just a little preview to something that's going to be coming up in May. We're going to be having an Anne, A-N-N-E, anniversary. Oh, a pun. <laughs> For Anne's anniversary on the podcast, and one of the things that we are going to ask, we're going to offer some cool stuff, but we're going to ask you to rate and review us and and send us that info. So get just do it now, or, or actually, well, now I'm telling people and they're not going to do it. They're going to wait until this, but it's fine. Anyway, okay. let's talk about Bear. Yeah, let's talk about Bear. Yeah, what were your reactions? So I listened to this episode when I was walking home earlier today. So I didn't have anything to write with, and I'm making a conscious effort to not be on my phone while I'm walking. Mm -hmm. And every two seconds, I was like, oh, I want to talk about that. Oh, oh, wait, no, I want to talk about that. Oh, wait, no. (laughs) This episode's just full of amazing things. And Bear just seems incredible. And also, what a badass name. Can we not agree? Right. And so Bear a Bear is their full name. And they kept saying Bear a Bear. And I was like... Bear a, I don't understand. And then at the end, you'll hear me go, oh, (laughs) they say that is how you pronounce their last name, which looks like Hebert. So my ding dong brain the whole time was like, why do they keep saying their name twice? (laughs) Yeah. So I did want to note for listeners because I listened to this yesterday and this morning. And sometimes I, most of the time I listen back to things and I am proud of myself and I'm like, oh, wow, that was a really good question or, you know, that's a good topic. We we got on and I like pat myself on the back and move on. Um, I had some misgivings about the way I showed up in this episode and I want to be transparent about it because, A, because I just want to be transparent, but B, also, if you are going to be listening to the Burnt Out Practice Owner series that's going to come out in between these episodes, Mm -hmm. Those are all focusing on people who've owned group practices or do own group practices. And I shared how much money I sold my business for. Mm -hmm. And I want to be transparent in that, like, I think that I positioned myself in order to to bond with Bayer. I think I positioned myself in a lower socioeconomic status than I actually am now. Ah, okay. I definitely grew up on the lower end. I also mm-hmm. don't like how I represented my mom and my stepdad in their work. They had they had careers. They just didn't mm-hmm. have undergraduate degrees. And at the time, mm-hmm. they were able to do that, right? Like you can't do that now with a lot of careers. But I, I think I think I oversold it. And I know that it was because I wanted to join with Bayer in a particular mm-hmm. way. And I regret that. And so I just wanted to state it. And I think if I were to do it differently, I would have been just a little bit more, I would have unpacked a little bit more some of the things that I was saying. But sometimes, you mm. know, who knows? I don't even, I think I recorded this literally like five months ago or something. So I don't know what my mental state was at the time. But yeah. So, you know, knowing you, that didn't actually jump out to me as like, an inconsistency. Like I didn't go, Mm -hmm. hold on, Sarah. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting because completely separate to that, 
I was thinking about class Mm. and we've talked about this before. I was thinking about how class shows up in the UK versus the US and how a lot of people in the UK call themselves working class or would be identified as working class. So my Mm. partner says David Beckham is working class. Oh, interesting. Richard Branson is working class because they grew up poor. They didn't have anything growing up. So 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 it's more of a caste almost. You cannot. Mm. And I, so from my understanding, right, I'm on the outside of this. You cannot transcend as you, your children can be the next class because Mm. Beckham's children are, were born rich. But yeah. So what was interesting, and it's interesting that you have just said that because I think one of the kind of disagreements my partner and I have around class is over-identifying with something that you were versus yeah. what you currently are. Mm-hmm. And I disagree with someone like David Beckham associating as working class. And I'm not saying he does. Like, I don't know right. that he's made a statement on this. But right. whereas, you know, my partner would say, you never grow out of what you were born as. And and mm. I think somewhere in the middle is the truth, right? And and I yes. think that's what you're saying is yes. part of you really identified with a lot of the things that Bear was talking about mm-hmm. in the past. And maybe you don't face some of those challenges currently. And mm-hmm. both of those things are okay. Yeah. And both of those parts of you deserve compassion and recognition. So maybe yeah. as your co-host, I'm just saying, don't beat yourself up too much. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I wasn't beating myself up. It was just more of a wish, right? Like as mm-hmm. I was hearing some of these mm-hmm. things, but you named it mm-hmm. perfectly because and I think having had the experience of having a lot less money at different points in time in my mm-hmm. life gives me the ability to move through different spaces in different in different mm-hmm. ways. But depending on who's there, except I'll tell you, because we we just got back from vacation and we went to Savannah and then drove to Charleston. Mm-hmm. Savannah was amazing and Gorgeous. wonderful. I hated Charleston energetically. I don't know that I've ever been there. It felt rich. And mm. I share, it, you know, as I'm talking with Bear, that I was raised to hate rich people, and mm-hmm. and there is just this feeling of I don't belong here, mm. you know. And mm-hmm. I mean, the wealth out there is like old money and astronomical. Okay. Asked the the house, I I mean, tens of millions of dollars these houses, mm-hmm. and I physically could feel it, <laughs> mm. and I physically feel it when I'm in the North I mean, Shore. Some of that money is we know where that's coming from, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> It came from slavery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that might also be it too, but I really think it's just my more personal relationship with what Mm -hmm. it means to be rich. And so, and this is what Bear and I talk about too, right? Like the class struggle and being able to Mm -hmm. recognize it. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're like kind of picking this apart. And so I hope listeners can really, really enjoy a little bit more of the nuance, even though I might not have said what I wanted to say at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Bear. Bear, a bear, they, them, is an artist, anti-capitalist business consultant, and social justice educator. Self-employed since 2014, Bear helps tiny business owners build thriving livelihoods while sidestepping the traps of capitalism. Their side gig is teaching men plus how to unlearn patriarchy. They believe that the relational work is real work and emotional work is movement work. They're trying to help us all get a little bit more free. So please enjoy my conversation with Bear a Bear. 
Are you a therapist stepping into leadership for the first time? Or maybe you've been in a leadership position for a while but are bumping up against new struggles. It's a transformative journey and one that can be deeply rewarding but also filled with unique challenges. Many therapists find themselves in leadership positions because of their exceptional therapeutic skills, yet leading, supervising, or managing others requires a whole new set of competencies not covered in graduate school. Our authentic leadership group is here to help you become the authentic and wholehearted leader you aspire to be. And we believe this journey is best undertaken with the guidance of experienced mentors alongside fellow learners. Authentic Leaders will run February 2024 through September, meeting once monthly on Fridays for 90 minutes. Join me in this journey of self-discovery and leadership mastery, where you'll enhance your leadership skills and forge meaningful connections with fellow therapists who are committed to their own growth and the betterment of the therapy field. To join me and start registration, go to www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash authentic dash leaders dash group. That's headheartbiztherapy.com slash authentic dash leaders dash group. Bear, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited. I have a lot of questions, but let's not get to my questions first. <laughs> so I always think it's a funny story how I find people because, first of all, if you're a podcaster, anybody else out there is a podcaster, you get emails all the time. It almost never works out when I get those emails, but I somehow like just stumble across magical people in the world. And you were one of those people. So I was in a training. This other person in a training had their website like in their Zoom name. So I was just curious and like looked them up. And then they listed your marketing for weirdos course. And I was like, I should be in that. <laughs> Who is this person? And then I downloaded your freely course which I've only seen one so far, but it just really spoke to me. And you just seem great. So I just wanted to have a conversation. Thanks. Yeah, that's so funny that you mentioned that about podcast pitches, because I was thinking about it earlier today that I've, I've been on a lot of podcasts at this point in my business, and I've, I've never sent a podcast pitch. So See? I also... And just, which I don't say to be like, look at me, I'm so cool, but just but like, you are. but the right people find each other, yeah. right? There's like, there's magic. And of course, yeah, as a business coach, I encourage people to try, reach out if they want to be on podcasts, but yeah. I love the like magical serendipitous ways that people find each other. Yeah, same. Well, so tell people who you are and what you do. Yeah. My name is Bear, a bear. My pronouns are they, them. I'm talking today in Brooklyn, New York, where I've lived for the last year. Before that, I lived in New Orleans for 17 years and grew up in South Louisiana. Mm. And those places feel like really important parts of who I am. For work, I work as a radical business coach and a life coach, and I do social justice education. I'm also an artist and a writer, although those things don't usually pay the bills. Right. <laughs> uh, but they bring a lot of joy. And uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, white person. Like I said, I'm from the deep south of the United States. I'm Cajun. My mm. family's of Cajun ancestry. I'm queer and genderqueer and have been, you know, out as a queer person for 22 years now and out as a genderqueer person for 11 years. So those have been a big piece of how I see myself and how I navigate the world. I don't know if there's anything else I need to name off the top. I, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, let me say actually a little bit more sure. because I think it might be relevant to the conversation that we have after this. But yeah. I grew up with a mix of like working class and working poor kind of class background. And then my 
my family has sort of ascended, my immediate family has ascended more into a like middle class working, mm. working middle class life. And I too live now a, a pretty firmly middle class existence, although that wasn't true for a lot of my adulthood. Yeah, I think those are all the like relevant bullet points to to start with off the top. And I'll join you in the like sort of naming the socioeconomic status because I also grew up like working poor, working class. I mean, my dad was an attorney, but he, my parents split so early that it was like not even a thing. So my mom and my stepdad both did not have college degrees and, you know, made careers out of just, you know, whatever jobs they could find. And it was really interesting when I was in grad school, I got engaged to my husband who is definitely more upper middle class. And boy, the guilt that I had of thinking I was like assuming some sort of wealth just by being attached to him. Holy shit. The shit that I put myself through because I was raised to hate rich people. Yep. So we, man, we have so much to talk about. Yeah, so, great. okay, let's start with what is your magical unicorn origin story to how you landed where you are right now? Yeah. For most of my adult life, my my work was that I waited tables. I waited tables for 15 years, sort of as a full-time profession. And in 2000, let's see, how far back do we want to go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bear was born and then <laughs> Exactly. No, so we'll start with we'll start with Hurricane Katrina because yeah. that was sort of the like pivot point sure. in my life. So in 2005 Hurricane Katrina happened. I was 22 and among many other things that happened to me around that time, a friend was like, "Have you ever been to a yoga class? I think mm. that might really help you right now." And I was like, "Okay." And so I went to a yoga class and, you know, had a profound and life-changing experience of my body and of like being in a body mm. in space with other bodies. So I pretty quickly became a dedicated yoga student. And then of course, because because I am who I am, I was like, oh, I need to teach this. Yeah. I need to help other people with this. Sounds like we are similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so within a few years, I did a teacher training and started teaching yoga in 2009. And then yeah, taught yoga and waited tables concurrently for a lot of years, and was having the kind of conversations in the yoga space that I was facilitating that were really more about how to be a person than like mm -hmm. how to be a fit right. hot bod um <laughs> right as was more of the, that I mean mm -hmm. it's probably still the norm in the yoga space but yeah. so I, I taught yoga for a long time and then was really trying to help people figure out how to how to be a person too and mm, pretty organically out of that people that I knew from the yoga space started asking for more support than what I could give them in the space of, you know, 15 minutes between two classes at the studio. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing life coaching. I did three quarters of a life coach training that I ended up hating and dropping out of. So I never got certified because, you know, right. Well, that's it's the way it it's is. It's very capitalistic. So I'm sure it didn't vibe with you. <laughs> yeah, especially in 2014, when I did that first training, the options were much more limited. But I started doing life coaching and then that really took off. And then, you know, I'd been doing anti-racism work, you know, really looking at my own whiteness for a long time at that point. And in 2018, I finally sort of arrived at a conclusion about teaching yoga for myself that like as a white person, that didn't feel like a thing I could do mm. in good conscience anymore and maybe had never been. Mm -hmm. And so I quit teaching yoga. I wrote really publicly about all of that and my thoughts on cultural appropriation and 
sort of imploded my my social and business world wow. in a lot of ways. And then life coaching really became the thing that I had to like put a lot of focus on, mm-hmm. put a lot of energy towards. And then out of that, like people were like watching me build this life coaching business and seeing the business side of the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I accidentally became a business coach. So people were like hiring me to be their life coach, but really they wanted to talk about like how to use Instagram. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's like actually a different set of skills and tools and a different conversation. And so I started offering business consulting in 2018. And the rest is history. His- the rest is, yeah, it's just sort of been rolling from there. Yeah, yeah. And I remember in your Freely course, you said that you had gotten introduced to social justice and, and anti-capitalism pretty early on. Can you talk about, I think you did use the word indoctrinated. So can you talk about that experience? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I don't, I, yeah, that's really funny that I use the word indoctrinated. Yeah, yeah. That's maybe not the word I would I mean, choose you if you asked me about at this it, right so now. Was, yeah, okay, yeah. very good. Yeah. yeah, let's see. The origin story of my kind of class and race and just sort of like power analysis consciousness. You know, I tried to come out as queer in middle school. I tried Mm -hmm. again in high school. I like grew up in small city, deep south, and like it didn't go over well. So then I was sort of like, okay, I'll go back in the closet. And I was like, you know, Mm -hmm. in a really repressive religious upbringing Mm -hmm. for my adolescence. So really being faced with a lot of like gender and and sexuality kind of pressures to conform to mm. a particular way of being and doing. So that the was Southern Belle. Yeah. I mean, not like we didn't have enough money for me to okay, be a Southern well, Belle. Thank I God. Think, but, <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, definitely like very yeah. conservative Southern Christian kind of influences. And then a couple of things happened. One, 9-11 happened when I was a senior in high school, mm. and that really felt like the first time I started thinking about global politics in any kind of way. Mm. And just like seeing the reactionary way that racism just immediately sort of like reared up around that was a real kind of like, you know, eye-opening moment for me politically. I got involved in like the anti-war, anti-war in Iraq movement Mm. in the earliest 2000s. And then I went to college and it was like, oh my God, I can be free Mm. a little bit more now. And so, you know, I... I started drinking. I started smoking. I started, you know, having sex. I, started, you know, was dating men. I was dating women. I was like learning about my own gender, and I, you know, sort of really having the kind of exploratory phase that I think a lot of people get in high school. Mm-hmm. But I was getting it in college, and in the midst of all of that is when Hurricane Katrina happened. Mm-hmm. And if I thought I knew anything about race or class or the way the world worked before that, like, I mean, yeah, what a sort of like up close and personal and really harrowing look at the way that race and class plays out in the realities of people's lives and people's deaths. Yeah. And, you know, I was 22 and like setting out on my own for the first time, trying to be a grown up and to just sort of have my whole kind of life and city and community totally crumble. Uh, Were you in college in New Orleans? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that was like, wow, okay, things are not the way that I thought they were. Yeah. And like, we sort of purport to be a, you know, post-racial society, but like, we're really not. And like, look at it. It's right here. You know, here it all is the way that things actually function. And so that was, you know, a really big, a really big pivotal moment for me in terms of race consciousness, Mm -hmm. you know, and that alongside my own kind of personal explorations around gender and sexuality sort of came together. And then I just like, kept growing from there. I could point to, you know, a number of other things in more 
recent years it's like okay Trayvon Martin that was a big deal that was like okay wow I understand some things about police and police violence even though that story is different than than lots of others you know Mm -hmm. and then my own kind of personal reckoning with teaching yoga and Mm -hmm. being a white person and cultural appropriation and just sort of coming to terms with the ways that my own entitlement had sort of kept me ignorant to the harm that I might be causing. So something I've been thinking about a lot is ego development in Mm. terms of, right, is somebody who is exploring power, capitalism, racism, gender, all that sort of stuff, you have to have a pretty significant level of ego development to tolerate all the harm that you've caused, right? And I wonder if those of us who are in any way marginalized sort of get an introduction to ego development a little early because we're othered or misgendered or, you know, what whatever it is that sort of we're facing adversity-wise sort of gives us an advantage in ego development. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's funny. I have a book on my bookshelf that we just pulled out last night that's called The Spiritual Advantages of a Painful Childhood. I think that's actually the subtitle of it. Oh, I'm going to need that book. Yeah, Wayne Mueller is the is the author okay. and I think I'm fo- I don't totally know the psychological term of like ego development, yeah. but I I think I think I'm following what you're saying and yeah. Cuz listeners might not either, right? So when I think of ego development, I think about being able to tolerate the truth about yourself even when it's not good because you have to be able to grapple with in order to grow, you have to move beyond for lack of a better term, more more immature ways of being in order to be expansive and and really believe in equality and all that sort of stuff. You can't do that without examining your own stuff and letting your own stuff go. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely that feels true to me. And yeah, I don't know if it has to do with like queerness or like being an artist or just like Mm-hmm. Sort of knowing that I was othered in some particular ways from the time that I was young and being willing, even in my like trying to survive and trying to fit in and trying to find belonging, still being committed in my heart of hearts to the like that kernel of truth about myself. Yeah. Yeah. That that builds some kind of like personal fortitude that then when somebody says, oh, hey, like those things about you that you thought were bad or maybe not bad, but also, hey, these things about yourself that you never considered yeah. or that you maybe thought were good, yeah. maybe those things are not so good. Right. And having having had that experience of of having to look at the stuff that I thought was bad and be able to see it as good also then gave me some skills to be able to see the stuff that I thought was good or neutral and be able to see the ways that maybe that had actually caused harm. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what I'm... I've been trying to conceptualize for myself how how do I speak to people? Because right now I'm in the space of I feel like everything that I have to offer, nobody's ready for. <laughs> and I mean, p- yes. people who are listening to this podcast, you're here for it. I know it. But a lot of the paid work, <laughs> right? So uh, so you're already saying, yes, you get it too. Like, what what are you experiencing? Yeah, it's funny. I don't feel this as much right at this moment as I as I have in the past. But mm-hmm. I feel like that particular feeling of, I know that the world needs this, but the world doesn't know that the world needs this. Like that was like so much of the way that it felt inside my business and inside my work for a long time. So what helped? How did you shift? Did the world catch up with you? (laughs) Yeah, I think for me, I just like 
kept talking about it even when people were like, that's stupid or I don't like that or like what, Mm. you know, I just kept saying, okay, it's fine if that's not right for you, but I think that this has relevance or I think that this might be true for some people that eventually some more of the right people have shown up in my space. And I do think the world has changed. Like I think Mm -hmm. the pandemic plus Black Lives Matter has like really shifted consciousness. I agree. For a lot of people in a lot of ways, for a lot of like middle class white people around race and around class, they Mm -hmm. have like more of an analysis about those two aspects of power Mm -hmm. than maybe ever before. And so that's, I I name that it's like middle class and white people because- I think that there's a presumption that like, oh, people have changed. And it's like, okay, who who are the people we're talking about? Because like right. poor people and people of color have been knowing about this stuff for a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there are a lot more middle class white people who are thinking about this stuff in a different way. And I think I am bumping up against that. It's like the tipping point in consciousness, right? Because in in my profession, we're all very good liberal white ladies, right? That is the bulk of my profession. So what I bump into is people coming and saying like, and I work with a partner who's a person of color. So it's not just like me going in there and being like, this is what you do. So, you know, we go in there and they'll be like, yes, we want everything you have. This is amazing. We're all going to transform and then bump up against something at some point where it's the ego strength. It's their own ability to tolerate the painful truth that then we get fired. Which is a, such a bummer, but that's what's happening. Totally. Yeah. Right. So then if, for me, it's like, okay, then what are the like, what are the corollary skills that people need to develop alongside right. being shown the truth, right? right? If you're like, I'm going to go in and show you the truth about yourself. Like, what do you need to know in advance of that so that you right. can have, so that you can have this knowledge and tolerate having this knowledge? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. But that's for another yeah. day. Let's talk yeah. more about capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so you said on the Freely course, I don't know what to call it, course. I wanted to call it a thing, but that feels disrespectful. It's a course. <laughs> Freely thing. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so I'm not precious about it. Yeah. So you had said, which made me feel better about myself, because I, I always judge like I should have known all this shit way earlier. I should have been on the front lines of social justice at 18 years old, you know, whatever, make all this stuff up about how terrible I am because I haven't been there. And you said that of all of the isms, capitalism tends to be the last one that we, you know, come in contact with or start to recognize as real. Why is that? Or what have you noticed about why that might be true? Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, looking at capitalism and looking at class is the trickiest because it is the one that is least visible. Mm. Which is is sort of a funny thing to say because of course we can, you know, you can point to like the richest people in our society and say that person seems rich, right? They fly right. a private jet and wear designer clothes, right? Or we can point to the people who are the poorest and say like that person is wearing tattered clothes and doesn't have a place to sleep at night. They are probably poor, right? And we can make assumptions. But we can only really make those assumptions about people at the extreme ends. Yeah. And for everybody else in the middle, yeah. it is much harder to like look at somebody and make an assessment, right. which is different than race or different than gender, right? Mm-hmm. Where we can sort of look at somebody and and we might be making an inaccurate guess, right. but we can make a guess about how somebody might be positioned inside of our structures of power. Mm-hmm. 
And so one, we don't see it. And two, I think it is the one that is easiest to internalize Mm. that whatever the good things we have, we earned them. And whatever bad things we suffer, we deserve them. Which is a good Protestant ethic. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> so I think that there is like more there are more layers to unpeel mm, there mm-hmm. that make it so that it's harder for people to see it sooner. And I think, you know, to your point before about our own experiences of having been, you know, marginalized in whatever ways that that makes us more gives us more what did you call it ego ego strength. Mhm. Yes, that gives us more ego strength. It also like makes us more likely to just be able to see other see marginalization happening where I'm like, oh, I'm a, you know, female assigned person and I see the way that patriarchy is fucking up my life. Mm-hmm. So I can like look out and also see, oh, that person of color, like racism might also be fucking up their life in different but equally shitty ways, you know, and and to be able to like sort of make those connections where I think class just seems so much more we're trained to believe that that is a much more influenceable mm-hmm. aspect mm-hmm. of power. That's like, if I just work hard, I could get out of poverty. Right. If I just did the right things, I could escape this form of oppression, where it's like, there's not really any ways out of out of patriarchy or out of white supremacy, right? Like, those right. are just, you can't change right. your position inside of those systems. Yeah. No, those are really helpful. Because I think about My interaction with class and what I was taught, because it was interesting, we we were definitely on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, but there were people in our church that were lower, right? And so we bring those people groceries and those people need support. And I always, and I still have it, and I just want to name it out loud, that when I encounter people without homes, there's an equal like guilt in me and, and sort of aversion to it probably because of the guilt and because of like, if I humanize them in that moment, I don't know if I can bear it with as much as I see it in Chicago as I do, right? And I mean, this is all capitalism. And it's it's only like, probably within the past like year that I've really started to understand all of the intersection of, of this and and name it when it's happening for myself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that like, what you've just named there about the connection between guilt and aversion, Mm -hmm. that aversion, I think, is so important to actually name and look at because because I think it points to how close we all actually could be. Right. Yeah. To that kind of economic peril. Like that could be maybe not all of us, but that could be many of us in a few bad weeks, months, or years, depending on your level of stability. Right. And you know, the kind of like financial stress that so many people find themselves under, I think is rooted in a deep-seated knowledge that like, Mm. even if things are not perilous at this moment, they could become perilous. And peril inside of capitalism is literally life-threatening. Like people literally die because they don't have access to the money that they need. So they can't house themselves. They can't, you know, feed themselves. They can't get the medical care that they need. And so you know, our little nervous systems see that that is a reality, see that that is a possibility. And so we feel both terrified and averse because, oh my God, I don't want that to happen to me. Also, I don't want it to happen to anyone else. But the sort of powerlessness that we feel inside these systems that like, yeah, keep people Mm. stuck there, I think is really, 
yeah, it's really hard to grapple with. It's hard to bear it. And that leads me to a question, the biggest question I wanted to ask. And it's funny, I hear myself in older podcasts like asking things about racism and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, that was such a dumb question because I was in a baby <laughs> stage of learning. But I lit I ask the stupid quote unquote questions out loud because other people have these too, right? Yeah. So what is the difference between saving responsibly so that you don't end up in calamity and wealth hoarding? Oh, great question. Right? <laughs> Good. Pick it apart for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is I don't know. And I have lots of thoughts about it, yeah. but and I'll share those, but I don't have an answer to that that's like, oh, this is the line. This right. is the distinction. Up till this amount and you're you're good and beyond that amount you're bad, right? right? Like right. I don't have that kind of a answer. So, dear listeners, I apologize that I do not have this answer for you. Right. But also like I would be wary of anybody who says they do have that answer mm -hmm. in a kind of concrete way. Okay. Two, I think that like practically speaking, it costs a lot of money to stay alive and well in the United States. And if you are a person who has had not enough money for a long time, having any amount of money more than just the bare minimum will feel like too much money. <laughs> I feel rich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I lived very poor for a very long time. Yes. <laughs> Same. I yeah. also feel rich. Yeah. I made like 20000 or fewer dollars every year for yes. many years of my life. And like, you know, I was okay. I always could, I could mostly always pay my rent and always had enough money for food. And so like, I was okay. Mm -hmm. And now I make like, you know, more than that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it feels like a preposterous amount of money. Yes. And yet... When I actually do the math of like, okay, how much money does it cost to live in the city that I live in to pay for health insurance out of pocket because I now make too much money to qualify for a subsidy. So my mm -hmm. insurance premiums are, you know, $900 a month. I'll just talk mm -hmm. real numbers here, yeah. you know, and then to think about the future in any kind of real way, right? That's mm -hmm. like, what? would it look like for me to be able to retire at an age at which I am no longer able to work and to be able to provide some degree of financial care for myself in right. that time? When I actually calculate the numbers, I need to make not only how much money I'm making now, but also more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I actually, you know, I'm 39, I'll be 40 next month. Mm -hmm. I have zero dollars saved for retirement. So for a person at age 40 to start saving for retirement, I'm like, okay, yeah, I have to save a lot of money every year in order to be able to, mm -hmm. to, be able to stop working at some point, which I would like to be able mm -hmm. to do and think that all people ought to be entitled to do. And so actually, the amount of money that I currently make is, is still not enough, even though it's like four times as much money as I made for a long time. Yeah. It's still not actually enough to prepare for that kind of a future. Yeah. So- that's like some personal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think the like big picture stuff of like what is wealth hoarding and like where do we draw a line? One, I think like this is sort of what I think about in terms of any kind of privilege or, you know, responsibility is like, is this a right that I think everyone should have access to? Mm. Or is this a privilege that I think actually nobody should have? Mm. Right. So I'm like private jets. That's a privilege that no one should have. That is, that is, that's bullshit. Nobody needs a private jet. Yep. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> like, we can just put that in the camp of nobody needs to have that. And if you're 
making so much money that that's the thing that you're doing with your money, like you should redistribute some of it. You should redistribute what yeah. you're spending on your private jet and put it back into the common, you know, put it back towards the common good. So if anybody listening to this podcast has a private jet, both Bear and I will take your donations. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that we can retire by age 70 and like, you right. know, have a little chill time before we die. Right. But there, you know, but there's plenty of other stuff that I think we've like, especially if you have had actual experiences of financial scarcity, things that you may have coded as things mm-hmm. that only wealthy people do or things that only wealthy people have access to that I right. actually would put in the, the category of things that everyone should be able to access, such as time off from working, yeah, such as access to medical care that doesn't yes. bankrupt you or make you have to have a GoFundMe, yes. such as being able to take a vacation sometimes and like yeah. go to a nice place, you know, being able to like buy beautiful objects for your home, being able to like, you know, yeah eat food that is healthy and nourishing and not like, you know, whatever is the cheapest thing you can afford. And like, Mm -hmm. those are rights that I think all of us ought to have, even if not all of us do have them. And so then I really try to absolve myself of guilt about having those things, even though other people don't have them, right? And so it's like, the guilt about having them doesn't actually help the people who don't. Right. Right. And so then what can I do with that energy I would have spent feeling guilty and instead put that towards action? Like, what can I do yes. instead to yes. move towards everybody having access to these things? And yes. then I know that like that line for me is like, oh, am I sp- am I like buying shit that I don't think anybody needs to be spending their money on? Because like that's the place where it starts to feel icky. And I'm like, OK, cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, this is like not good stewardship of my funds. And I'm going to make a different choice here. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not because I need to feel bad for like having yeah. enough money to have a life that has space for beauty in it or space for rest in it. But because I see my own wellness as part of a collective project. Yes. And we can't fight for justice if we're unwell. Totally. Totally. Yes. I love how you're framing this because I think a lot of the listeners are also like me and feel that guilt and feel, you know, every time I see, you know, a post about, you know, some sort of like collection for people who need something, I feel like because I have excess, I have to give and I'm trying to figure out how to pay my student loans again after three years of not. And that's a thousand dollars a month between me and my husband that like, okay, where are we going to find this money, you know? So, yeah, I I love that you're framing it as like we get to have joy, too, you know, and truthfully, you and I did not cause the system that's created the immense disparity that we have. And all we can do is our small parts to try to shift it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like part of what happens is people get and this happens, too, in terms of like as white people trying to deal with white supremacy. I Mm -hmm. see this with men trying to deal with patriarchy that we get overly burdened with yeah. like a sense of over responsibility for the system. Yes. And it makes it so that then we don't have access to the agency that we actually do have to affect change. Right. And so if you keep your sense of agency right sized, you can actually do things that matter. <laughs> you right. can actually do things that start to shift things on a systemic level, even if the system is very small scale, even if the system is just mm-hmm. in your town or at your church or wherever. I don't know how many, maybe you don't have a lot of churchgoers in Probably your audience. Probably not. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I just said that because you said that before, but about, you yeah. know, growing up, needing, yeah. People needing groceries at church. But yeah. anyhow, yeah, that like when we, we take over responsibility at the systemic level, then mm-hmm. we can't actually affect things on a personal level or interpersonal level or community level. And so I think it's it's important to like alleviate ourselves of guilt that we don't need to take on. And also to not use that as an excuse to then do nothing. Like, I don't need to mm-hmm. feel guilty about having a good life. Like, everybody should have this. And then, like, not doing anything to make sure that everybody has access to right. it. I feel like that's, like, a little bit of a liberal trap. Well, again, it goes back to the capacity to tolerate the truth. Because when I I had a, a recognition around racism that my overwhelm of the system was a little bit bit narcissistic and centering myself in the process. And once I was able to realize that, I was able to like shift the responsibility, right? I was blaming myself when I had nothing to do with this, you know, other than my participation. I can make amends for my participation, but I can't fix the system. And that shift for me was what helped me get out of overwhelm to be able to have the capacity to take more action. Exactly. Exactly. So it's about taking the right amount of responsibility for the things that we can take responsibility for and letting ourselves be okay with the places that it's not actually our responsibility. And that too can be uncomfortable. It can be really uncomfortable to say, I'm going to take time off work to travel. Mm -hmm. And I know that not everybody has access to that. And I like mourn for that. And I also work to change that. Right. And the fact that not everybody has it doesn't mean that no one should have it. Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. It's a lot of complexity to hold. I know. I know. I mean, this is what, you know, you, you said earlier, the consciousness being shifted. This is what's being called of us right now. If we don't figure out how to hold all these nuances and maneuver our way through it, we're not going to survive as a a culture, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I think like people are doing it. It feels really, again, going back to that, that question of like being three steps ahead of your, you know, of your audience or your people that it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, actually, I think the paying um, customers, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think that there are a lot of people who are feeling the friction of all of this, they they feel the tension, and they don't know yet what to do about it, but they yeah. feel the friction and they feel the tension. And that to me is hopeful, actually, because yeah. I think that friction and that tension is what incites people to change. I agree. I agree. You seem so mentally well. Like, I can truly feel your capacity to like be with all of this in a very grounded, centered way. Mm. Is that reality or are you just a really good podcast guest? <laughs> or both? <laughs> Thank you, I think. Yes. It's a compliment. (laughs) Okay, I'll say two things. One, my own practices around grief. Mm. Like grief practice is the way that I can like be mentally well. Mm. And that might seem Mm. like sort of out of left field. But I think probably you understand and probably your listeners understand. I do. That like actually so much of how I have, I have the capacity that I have now is because I have, done a lot of work and spent a lot of like time and energy really grieving and that's like you know grieving the wounds of my childhood yes grieving the ongoing wounds of my family of origin grieving the wounds of my lineage as a white person grieving the wounds of you know my position as a female assigned person the lineage of being a queer person and like really grieving for both the harm that I've suffered and also the harm that I've caused. Mm. And that 
has really like led me to a place of being able to to hold a lot of nuance. I man, I really think actually that people who had a fucked up childhood who've done a lot of work around it, yeah, have like so much. I see it in us that we have like so yeah. much capacity to hold, right? And like yeah. it's because like at that for me anyway, the primal relationships with the people who were supposed to like love and protect me were ruptured. Now we're just like all the way in. Preach. Right. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Right. But I had to, as a tiny little person, like hold the complexity of like, this person is harmful to me and also my best shot at survival. Yeah. And so, like, those two being able to like hold that level of nuance was like totally destructive as a small person, but like as a grown person in a big body, I don't live there anymore. Right. I get to like, you know, make my own make choices. New choices. And, yeah. And like, actually, one of the gifts of that is that it really has like built in me a lifelong practice of being able to hold complexity and hold nuance mm. and to say like, yeah, I both caused harm and have been harmed. My parents both caused me harm and mm. were harmed, mm -hmm. you know, like societally, that is what is also going on on right. so many levels. Right. So yeah, mm -hmm. want to talk about a wounded healer, like there it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to say to listeners who might be hearing it and being like, oh shit, you figured that out in childhood. I didn't figure it out until like four years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let me, let me not, let me not oversell my own, my own process. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on as a kid, but I, I didn't have any of that self-awareness. But looking back, like I figured it out as much as I needed to. Right. And so did you. And so did all of the listeners who right. are here because we're still here. Right. Exactly. We figured it out as much as we needed to figure it out yeah. because we made it. Here I am. I'm mm -hmm. almost 40. Can you believe it? Like yeah. little me could not have fathomed. Right. And mm -hmm. yet here I am. And thriving. Right. That's the other piece, too. It's so funny how have you ever heard of NARM? Yeah. 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 OK. So is that the type of therapy you've done? No, I haven't, but I know people who practice this. Okay, because what you're explaining is NARM, right? It's, you know, children always choose attachment over authenticity. And when I think about who I thought I was going to be, like when I was a teenager, I thought I was going to be a high school music teacher in my high school where I graduated from, married to my high school boyfriend, and that was going to make me happy for the rest of my life. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not me. That was not at all authentic to me. and. Thank God there was some sort of spark of fortitude within both of us that were like, go be you, right? Go find your people, go find love and safety somewhere because you didn't, you weren't gifted that in your family of origin. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. It's such a cool reframe of like coping strategies to say that, like, yeah. oh, yeah, that, you know, I think there's so much kind of pop psychology that says, we choose these self-sabotaging patterns or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, yes, and, right? Yeah. I would say yes. And mm -hmm. also, like, those were the strategies that kept us alive. Yes. Those were the strategies that kept us okay enough to yep. get here to this place where then we can, like, do the work that needs to be done to heal. Right. So, And you talking about grief, like, that's the other thing in NARM, the, the underlying premise is that we didn't feel the grief or the anger that we 
had a complete right to based on the abuse or neglect that we were suffering as children. And so you allowing yourself space for grief, that's exactly what I'm trying to support my clients in doing, right? And that I try to allow for myself to grieve. For me, it's anger. Getting in touch with my anger was the harder thing for me. So anger Mm -hmm. is really what's necessary for me. But this is beautiful. I'm just so grateful to get to know you this way. Thanks. Yeah, Yeah. it's mutual. It really is. And yeah, I had a really great therapist for a number of years. And yeah, I also will credit the 12-step program, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. Yeah, Al-Anon over here. Yeah, Mm Al-Anon. So ACA has been part of my my healing journey also. And yeah, there's so many paths, right? But those have been some of the ones that that were mine. Yeah. I mean, in NARM, they talk about the work helping you grow up. And I also think that from my time in Al-Anon too, because it's so funny, I, I don't even go to meetings right now, but some Al-Anonisms will just kind of like spill out of me. And it's like, oh, I'm like, I'm living it now. Yeah. You know, I spent a good five years, like I did it every week. I did the steps, all the stuff. And yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty cool where you and I came from respectively to be able to look back and then have appreciation for how much we've grown and how much work we've done. Yeah. Totally, totally. I don't feel like my childhood was a gift, but I feel like the growth right. that I've experienced yes. since then has been a real gift. Yes. And yeah, it's really it's a precious thing to get to be the like healing presence to my younger self that I didn't get when I was young. Right. And to the people who are coming to you for business support and and are you still doing life coaching too? Very sparsely, but yeah. yes. Right. You know, I usually ask the question, how do you feel about Wounded Healer? But you already said that you, (laughs) that that's what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I want to clarify that I don't think I've arrived at any sort of finality here. Right. That like I've done a lot of work. I like have a lot more groundedness and a lot more like mental wellness, Mm -hmm. as you put it, than I've had in the past. And I expect for this to continue to unfold over Mm -hmm. the entirety of my life. Like, and I, I really, I really hold that that I'll be engaged in this work for forever. Forever. But I do feel I do feel different than I did five years ago. Same. Or ten years ago. Yeah. But I, I hope that in five more years I'll feel different also. Right. In like newer and better ways that I can't yet imagine. I love that. That's awesome. Well, we're gonna have to hang out or something. Like this is just so enjoyable. And Great. I have so many more things I wanted to talk about with you, but it's totally fine. Where can everybody find you? You can find me on the internet. My website is bearcoaches.com and you can find information there about the Freely class that you mentioned. So that's called Freely, an anti-capitalist guide to pricing your work. It's a three-part self-paced. It's basically like Zoom recordings of a webinar that I taught in three webinars that I taught in 2019. So it's very lo-fi. There's so much richness in it. Thank though. you. That's yeah. why I keep selling it the yeah. way that it is, because it's just like the content is good, even though the delivery is no frills. So many other people are doing that too. <laughs> and charging a lot more. So you're yeah, good. <laughs> totally. Great. Yeah. So people can find that there. And then marketing for weirdos. I teach only once a year and we just wrapped it up. So people can put themselves on the waiting list if you you want to come and talk about marketing with me. I promise I bring just as much nuance and complexity to the the task of talking about marketing as I do to everything else. So I'll run that again next August. And then the upcoming thing that I have is the Radical Business Incubator, which will start enrollment in January. And it's like a six-month business group and one-on-one hybrid coaching program. And it's super fun. Yeah. I'm on Instagram at 
bear a bear with an underscore and my name is spelled my last name is spelled h-e-b-e-r-t which people will see if they're listening to this but it looks like hebert it looks like hebert but it's pronounced a bear because it's french oh yeah because you're cajun yeah because i'm cajun so it's a it's an extremely common cajun last name like it's as common as like smith in other places how about yeah, it Yeah, but in other parts of the country it's it, nobody's ever heard of it so got it um, thank you for yeah. clarifying that yeah amazing Those are the places to find me yes and yeah. who, who are your perfect business coaching clients right now yeah i love to work with people who want to sort of like dig into the intersection of business strategy social justice analysis and emotional skills like those are my kind of like three areas that i really like to work with people on so if you need some like you know, straight shooting business strategy, I got you. And if you want that, like with the inflection of like how to be a emotionally well person inside your business and also hold up your social justice values, like yeah. that's sort of the intersection of what I like to do. And so if those are interesting to you, I would love to to hear from you. Yeah. And maybe we need to have you come back to talk specifically about that because I think a lot of people probably do want that. Yeah, I just like think it's so possible to do business in a way that is mm -hmm. liberatory and exciting and mm -hmm. generative and not just like following the old scripts. So that's I really agree. what I'm trying to help people to do. Awesome. Well, you kick ass. Thanks. You kick ass too. This was so fun. It. Yay. <laughs> I just am really so happy that I stumbled upon you and you're you're great. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at, at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at at Spare Room Wellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.